was originally called Decoration Day. Anyone ever call Memorial Day Decoration Day? At least that's what it was first called, May 30, 1868, when a group of people went to the Arlington National Cemetery to decorate the graves of 20,000 Union and Confederate soldiers. During World War II, Decoration Day was expanded throughout our country and was renamed Memorial Day to honor all Americans who have died serving us. And today we meet together as a body of believers with freedom. We come together and we meet and we sing and we worship because many men and women have fought and died for our country. And we honor all those who have served. We appreciate all of you who have served and are serving. And we especially remember today those who have given the ultimate sacrifice. From the Revolutionary War to the Civil War to the war in Vietnam to the global war on terror today, over 1.1 million Americans have left their homes, left their families, and have fought for the freedoms and values that we often take for granted. These 1.1 million Americans have given their very lives so that we could be here today. And we can never take that for granted. While so many have fought and died for our religious freedoms, it is no stretch to say, there's no drama in this statement, that a battle still goes on today. Certainly, there's the war on terror fueled by religious extremists who celebrate. We live in a world where these individuals celebrate the killing of young children and teens leaving a concert. But there's another war going on at a spiritual level, and it's the war for the soul of our country, for the biblical truths that this country was founded upon, for the Judeo-Christian values upon which many civilized countries around our world are based upon. And so I'm going to go back to that question. Do we as a local church, do we have a responsibility to engage in the spiritual soul of our nation, the spiritual battle for the soul of our nation? Are we just satisfied with setting as spectators in stance? It's a question each of us has to answer right where you're sitting right here in your heart. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We've seen that Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, appeared alive for 40 days to his disciples. Not Not continuous 40 days, but he was in Galilee. He was at different places. And over a period of 40 days, he appeared alive. And then right before he ascended into heaven, the last words before he was taken up, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus gave this powerful promise and this direct command and then the scope of the command, but you're going to receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and throughout the world. That word power means that God 
promises through his spirit to give us everything we need to do what he's calling us to do. He gives us the capability. He gives us the ability. He gives us the strength. Now, I don't know specifically what God is calling all of you to do individually. I do know this. Some he has given a tough assignment. Some of you are going through some tough stuff. But the promise of Scripture is this. Whatever God calls us to do, he will always give us the capability, the ability, the strength to do it. So no Christian can ever say, what God has given me, the burden I have on my back, is too much for me to carry because it is God who walks through us and gives us everything we need. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. The moment we believe, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit that was on Jesus as He walked on this earth is the Spirit we have living in us. Because of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. That's the Greek word martyr, and we take it today to mean someone who has died for their faith. They were a martyr because they died for their faith. But the word means much more than that. Long before a person ever decides they're going to die for their faith, what do they do? They live for their Savior. That's the part of their life. There's a commitment to Jesus. There's an allegiance to Jesus. There's a devotion to Jesus. And they're demonstrating in their world, think about it, a person who's willing to stand and die is also the person who is willing to stand alone for Jesus Christ if that's the case in their life. They don't back down. Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're going to receive power and you're going to be my witnesses. And here's the scope. It's bigger than you are. It's in your home because it's got to start there, right? It's got to start in your home. I had a seminary professor who used to say, if Christianity doesn't work at home, it doesn't work. And if it's not working in your home, don't go tell anybody else because it's not working. It's got to start at home, right there in your Jerusalem, right here in our Jerusalem. That's why we have to be strong in all our core ministries of a church. It also starts in our community. You will be my witnesses at home, in your community, in your nation, and in your world. Now, last time in Acts chapter 2, we saw that the Holy Spirit came on uh, those 120 that were gathered in the upper room, and they went out, and they went to the temple area. There was this loud, rushing, mighty wind. It sounded like that, and the people in the temple caught their attention, and they all gathered together, and remember, Peter preached to them, and that day, three thousand people came to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. 3,000 people. We also saw in Acts chapter 2 that they begin, they begin to meet together, and, and, and they listen to the apostles' teaching. Man, wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been cool to hear the apostles teach, to sit right there and hear Peter and James and John tell about their experiences with Jesus Christ. They got to do that. These early Christians. Then they, then they were meeting together and they were taking care of each other. When a person had a need, they would go out and they'd sell a piece of property or they'll sell some goods and they would provide that need. They realized that God had given them everything so they could share it with others appropriately. And they were very comfortable. I mean, they stayed right there in Jerusalem. They didn't want to leave. 
It was Pentecost. All these people had come from different parts of the country. These Jewish people who through their history had been dispersed. Now they had come. They're in Jerusalem. Cool things are happening. Jesus Christ is, is transforming their lives. And they didn't want to go home. Would you? They wanted to stay there. But something took place. Something took place that caused them to go back to their homes. You know what it was? Acts chapter 7, the Jewish religious leaders came against the church. Stephen, devout Christian in the early church, was the first martyr. He was killed. And right after that, he was killed in Acts chapter 8. Check this out. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. The apostles stayed there in Jerusalem. Interestingly, Jesus' half-brother James becomes the head of the church in Jerusalem, as later the apostles go and take the message out. But all these people who were very comfortable in Jerusalem, now they're scattered. So think about it. Here they were. They became Christians. They came for the, the feast, right? All from all over the world. They're in Jerusalem, and now there's persecution, and so they're heading back, right? All the areas from whence they came, and what are they doing as they go? They're taking the message of Jesus Christ to their nation. They're sharing Jesus Christ with those in their nation. We get a glimpse of what hap was happening in Israel in uh, Acts chapter 8. We'll see next time how the gospel was taken throughout the world. But in Acts chapter 8, this is interesting. Philip was told by the Holy Spirit to go up to Samaria. So he leaves Jerusalem and he goes up and he shares the gospel in Samaria. Remember, the Jews didn't like the Samaritans, and the Samaritans didn't like the Jews. But interestingly, that's the first place God goes, uh, tells Philip to go. And then while he's in Samaria sharing the gospel and people are coming to Christ, it says that people were being added to the church day by day. He is told to go down to the road. There's a road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. Philip's told to go down here. And when he's on that road, who does he meet? You remember? The Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch is reading out of Isaiah, and he said, I don't understand this. And Philip shows up, and he says, let me explain it to you. And he introduces the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. And what does the Ethiopian eunuch do right after he trusts in Christ? Remember what he says? There's enough water here for me to be what? Baptized in the early church. When you believed, you were baptized. I challenge you, if you're a believer and you've not been, been baptized, July 29 and 30 is our next celebration service. You need to do that. Believed, baptized, all throughout the book of Acts. So the Ethiopian eunuch, he takes the gospel to Ethiopia. Then God sends uh, Philip up to Azotus right here. Azotus is um, a Greek city that used to be uh, the Philistine city of Ashdod, if you remember reading about Ashdod in the Old Testament. And then he takes Philip up to Caesarea. So Philip is going all through Israel sharing the message of Jesus Christ. And when, when Christ is shared, things change. Do you believe that? When Jesus Christ is shared, things 
changed. The world was never the same. When God's people, when God's people transformed by God's power, deliver God's message with words and actions, things are never the same. The ancient world was changed. Let me give you some examples. In the Roman Empire during that time, life was cheap. And ladies, your lives was the cheapest. When a baby was born, particularly a female, family, many times in the Roman Empire, it was common practice, would take those little baby girls out to the forest and leave them for wild animals, out on the mountainside for exposure or wild animals. And some cities even had these large towers. They were called baby towers. They were set up so you could just go leave your baby up there for exposure. Common practice. Infanticide was a common practice in the Roman Empire. As people did this, if you, if you had special needs, forget it. You were always abandoned. And if you're just unwanted, just uh, too many in the household, you could be abandoned too. There were people called baby farmers. And these baby farmers, perverted individuals, would go grab these babies, mostly girls, and they would take these babies in and use them for their pleasures. Prostitution, slaves, human trafficking, way back then. But the Christians saw things differently. The Christians realized that every person was made in the image of God. In fact, it's interesting, and there are a lot of theological reasons that Jesus was born of a virgin and grew in the womb. But when he did that, he put his stamp of approval on a baby because he grew up as a baby. And as a child, he said, let the children come to me. And so Christians said, we've got to protect these little babies. And so the Christians would run out to the fields to try to get out to the fields and get these abandoned babies before the baby farmers got them. And the cry went out to the churches to, to go get the children and bring them into the churches and raise them in the fear and instruction of the Lord. That's when orphanages started. That's when what was called nursery homes started for these children. Now, Christians experienced persecution up until 313 A.D. when Constantine became the emperor of the Roman Empire, and he put out an edict called the Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan said every Christian can worship freely. Christianity can be worshiped freely throughout the Roman Empire and also all the property that has been confiscated from the Christians through these years of persecution, it needs to be given back to the Christians. And so that's when we saw the Christian church kind of taking shape, not all good, we'll see in a second, but kind of taking shape. Fast forward a couple hundred years, and now the Roman emperor is a guy named Justinian, and Justinian puts out this code. Listen to what it says, the Justinian code. Those who expose children 
possibly hoping they would die, and those who use potions of the abortionists are subject to the full penalty of law, both civil and ecclesiastical, for murder. Should exposure occur, the finder of the child to see that he, um, the finder of the child to see that he is treated with human compassion, they may adopt him, they may be adopted, and even as we ourselves have been adopted into the kingdom of grace. So now, you find that baby out, you can adopt it in your family. Justinian said, even as we have been adopted into the kingdom of grace. From the very beginning of the church, Christians have not only stood for life, but they've done something about it. And that's why today at the Bible Chapel, we are unashamedly pro-life. And we want to do everything we can to contribute in a meaningful way to save babies from abortion. That's why as part of our national initiative in here, you can read all about it, we are teaming up with, like we have been for years, Human Coalition. If you're not up on this, South Hills Pregnancy Resource Center is now called Human Coalition Pittsburgh. And we want to invest money to save babies throughout our country. Wouldn't it be something if churches throughout our land would stand up in such a way and do the things that the churches in the early church did and save little babies from death and raise them and nurture them in Christian homes and in a Christian way? That's why we're asking you to get involved in these next three years. Because the early church did these types of things. The early church put their money where their mouth was. The early church put their action where their conviction was. And you can read all about it in this brochure. Please take it and determine if you're going to pray, you're going to serve and or give, and be a part of what God is doing through our church as we hold strongly to the sanctity of life. Now, the message of Jesus Christ changed the Roman Empire. I don't have a time to go through. Women, you need to read what Christianity has done for you throughout history. Women were thought to be chattel in much of history, but Christianity raised it up. Remember in Galatians, there is now no male or female, slave nor free. We are all one in Christ. Jesus actually had women with him in his entourage as he traveled. He raised the standing of women and the protection of women. Hospitals in the name of Christ were opened up. Orphanages opened up. Some great things were happening. And like I said, in 313, now Christianity became the religion of the Roman Empire. Now, that was a good thing because there was no persecution. But you know what? You know the old saying, right? Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And now, the Roman Catholic Church expanded throughout the Middle Ages, and there was a lot of corruption there, and there was a lot of persecution even among Christians. And then the, in the Renaissance area, the Reformation came in the 1500s, and in Germany, Lutheran, and then in England, it's the revival spread to England, and now you had the Church of England. And it's just amazing, but if you look at church history, 
if you didn't hold to the beliefs of those national churches, by the way, that's why you'd never want a national church. History. When you hold to belief, if you didn't hold the belief of the national churches, you were persecuted. So now we have in the 1500s and 1600s Christians being persecuted by what? Christians. It's interesting that Acts 8, persecution, causes the believers to scatter, right? Well, persecution is the same thing that caused the Puritans and the pilgrims to come to this new land of America. And when they came, they did two things right off the bat. They, they founded churches and schools. Churches and schools. One of the first things they did, 1647, the Puritans passed a law called, I'm sure you're familiar with it, the Old Deluder Satan Act. Anyone heard of that one? <laughs> the Old Deluder Satan Act. This was a law for literacy because the Puritans said, here's one thing we know. When you have a generation that is illiterate and can't read the Bible, Satan comes in and he has a foothold in their heart. The old deluder Satan comes in and has a foothold in their heart. So one thing we have to do, when you have a community of 50 households or more, you have to get your money together and you have to hire a full-time teacher to teach our children because we cannot let our children be illiterate. We cannot have biblical illiteracy because when biblical illiteracy comes on a nation, well, just look around. The Puritans used the Bible to teach their children to read, and they also used the New England Primer. And it's interesting, in the New England Primer, they taught the alphabet using scriptural truth. A, in Adam, in Adam's fall, we sin all. B, heaven to find the Bible mind. C, Christ crucified for sinners died. All the way through the alphabet, New England primer. Many ministers came to our country. They had been trained in Oxford and Cambridge, and a lot of them came to, to start churches and pastor churches here in the United States. And one of the first things they realized when they came is we've got now... Here in America, we've got to have uh, learning institutions and universities and colleges to teach pastors as well, because these pastors who came from England, they're going to die. And if we don't have another generation of pastors, we're sunk. That's why Harvard was started, started by John Reverend John Harvard. It's amazing, his name and Harvard how it goes together. He gave a donation. And he gave all his books to start Harvard. And here is what uh, it says on the entrance of Harvard University. After God had carried us safe to New England and we had built our houses, provided necessities for our livelihood, reared convenient places of, for God's worship, and settled uh, civil government, one of the next things we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and to perpetuate its posterity dreading, listen to this, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. You can still read that at Harvard. The first motto of Harvard is 1692, truth for Christ and the church. 
The next university founded was William and Mary, 1693. Uh, Here's why it was was, uh, started, that the Christian faith may be propagated. The next university was Princeton. First, it was called the Presbyterian College of New Jersey. Later, uh, Princeton, after the name of the city where it, where it is. The, uh, John Weatherspoon, uh, Reverend John Weatherspoon, was one of the presidents, and here's what he said, "'Cursed be all learning that is contrary to the cross of Christ.'" Dartmouth was started to train missionaries to go to the Indians. In Columbia University, first called King's College, early advertisement, here's what it said, the chief thing is aimed at the chief... I, I need to do that old deluder Satan act to learn to read here, don't I? Uh, the chief thing that is aimed at in this college is to teach and engage children to know God in Jesus Christ. Things have changed in the Ivy League schools, haven't they? Some of our most liberal colleges in our country. That's what happens when the church decides to sit in the stands in our nation. Along with the schools and universities, churches were established when our country was settled. And I got to go through this quickly, but I want to tell you about four guys, four guys that were household names in our country before Washington and Jefferson and Franklin. The first one was a guy named Theodore Freelingheisen. He was a Dutch reformed pastor. He came over to uh, America in 1719, and here's what he found. When he came over, he said, when I started pastoring the church, I found that, that, that Christianity was mechanical and routine. In fact, he said Christianity was more a symbol in the Dutch reformed churches. It was more a symbol of Dutch nationality than an expression of deep-seated Christian conviction. Man, is that convicting? So he started meeting people in their homes. He started saying, hey, guys, it's not about us being Dutch. It's about us being Christians. It's not about our nationality. It's about us following Christ and really meaning it. Another guy was named Gilbert Tennant. He uh, went into churches, and he found that people thought they were Christians, but he saw no evidence in their life. He called it presumptuous security. And he said, the first thing you got to do to be a Christian is to realize you're not a Christian. And he started preaching conviction. He started preaching that a person has to realize his or her sinfulness, their estrangement from God, they're subject to condemnation before they could receive forgiveness and acceptance. And under his preaching, little revivals started. Another guy was Jonathan Edwards. Anyone know about Jonathan Edwards? Someone's a brilliant mind. America has ever produced. And Jonathan Edwards pastored in Northampton, Massachusetts, and he was convicted when he saw the sinfulness of teenagers in his city. And he said they, are, they, they go to the taverns, they're out all night, they're participating in drinking and sex. I'm going to do something about it. It's amazing what happens when a church says what? I'm going to do something about it. So he started meeting with the teens in their homes. And he preached this sermon, a five-sermon series on justification by faith. And this this young woman of questionable morals came to Christ, 
and others were stirred by her example, and many started coming to Christ. And here's what Jonathan Edwards wrote. He said, the work of God made a glorious alteration in the town so that in the spring and summer following, the town seemed full of God's presence. Man, wouldn't that be something? There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was, it was a time of joy in families on the account of salvation being brought into them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn, husbands over their wives and wives over their husbands. When the church acts like the church, it's amazing what God does. One more person. Got to hurry. George Whitfield. Whitfield came to America and he started, start, he started orphanages. He preached in Philadelphia. Benjamin Franklin, who was n- never claimed to be a Christian, he was a deist. Franklin loved to listen to Whitfield. They said Whitfield was, had a dramatic flair and was a tremendous orator. Uh, history says that he could say the word Mesopotamia and just people would start crying just by the way he said it. <laughs> and Franklin went and lus- he loved to listen to him, but here's what Franklin said. He starts orphanages. Finally, a Christian who does something. Finally, a Christian who does something. Doesn't just talk about it. By the way, Whitfield, if you read his Bible, he was in debt most of his life trying to raise the money for these orphanages. Revival started taking place place throughout the country. In 1740, the first great awakening took place. And historians say that is one of the things that just united the American people. It wasn't the battles we fought. In fact, if you, look the, if you look at the Revolutionary War, you find a lot of Americans here were, were pro-England, not pro-America. If you look at other wars, look at, the, look at the war we have today. People are divided on how we should handle the war, global war on terror. But it was their faith in Jesus Christ, their commonality in the Savior that united the American people. And back then, people said, God, God may just have a great destiny for this country. And when you look around the world today, missions around the world are funded by two countries, primarily the United States and now South Korea. I was in, we were in Jamaica not long ago and people in Jamaica said, when the United States sneezes, we catch a cold. Whatever's happening there, we just get ready for it. And you know what they said? We're really concerned with what's happening there. God has given us a tremendous opportunity to go out to our nation. We have a platform now. We had the platform with the journey. Now we have even a larger platform with Back to the Bible. Back to the Bible has been fighting biblical illiteracy since 1939, and we continue to do that. And we have the opportunity to partner with that ministry on a national level to make an impact in churches throughout the country. We have a five-part plan here you can read all about. If you have questions about it, be sure and ask me. I love to tell you more about it. I had 40 meetings, but if you didn't get to come to those, I'll talk to you one-on-one. Let me give you some statistics as I wrap this thing up. George Barna says this, Protestant church in America, Protestant church in America, The average attendance of a Protestant church in America, anyone know? Average attendance, this is Barna, average attendance of a Protestant church in America, 89. Churches less than 100 adults, 60%. Churches less than 200 adults, 80. 
2.5%. Churches with a 1,000 adults or more, 2%. Now, I believe there's this passage in Scripture that says what? To whom much is given, what is it? Much is expected. And our heart in our church goes out to those churches with 200 or less in attendance who are normally led by a solo pastor. He usually is there for three to four years, and when he leaves, it is not a good situation going on all over the country. We have been great, blessed with a tremendous staff here. We've been blessed with a great congregation. We have some things to share, and we would love to be able to help. That's the part of the plan. You can read about it. Be able to go in and help those churches with discipleship because that's our heart as well. We are about discipleship. We are not about growing a church large. We want to grow a church deep. We've always said we take care of the depth. God takes care of the breadth. And we want to be those who go in, and we would like to reinstate the old deluder Satan act. Anyone with me on that? We need to change the name. That's not going to work, the old deluder Satan act. Let me give you another uh, real quick. Barna, Barna surveyed 14,000 adults. Here's what they said. Christians. Read the Bible every day. How, how often do you read the Bible? Not including church. This doesn't count. How often? Every day, 13%. Four times a week, 14%. Never, 27%. And here's the kicker of the, of the, uh, of the 20, well, once a week, 8%. So let's say, uh, what is that? 27, 35. Of the 35% that read the Bible once a week, of that, of that narrow number, only 24% are millennials. Now, go back to that Harvard thing. We have got to train another generation. When our bodies are lying in dust, who's going to be the next generation? How are we going to get people involved in God's work? Through the research of Back to the Bible, through the Center for Bible Engagement, their research arm, our research arm, there has been a daily discipleship app created. It's a little clunky. It's four years old. It needs redone. We'd like to invest in that. Whatever's happening today shows up on your phone. Did you know that? <laughs> in fact, uh, some of you, some of us are very proud that we're finally figuring out cable TV, right? <laughs> cable TV is yesterday. It's digital TV now. ESPN just laid off 100 journalists, 100 journalists, because they have lost 12 million viewers since 2011. You know why? Because we're watching it on our phones, watching it here or watching it through the Internet. You have Internet television now. Cable is a thing of the past. If we're going to impact millennials, it's got to be Something's got to be connected here, right? So Back to the Bible has this app. Let me give you some numbers. Right now, it's called Go Tandem. Again, it's a little clunky, and that's why we've got to get this thing up to date. Right now, there are 221,054 all-time users, 166,911 in the United States. Here's the breakdown, the age group. Now, 30,000 won't give us their age. Go figure, but... 25,771 are teenagers. 
Half of them are engaged in this. If you can tell me a better way to reach on a daily basis 12,000 teens, I'm all ears. 20s, 44,380. 30s, 38,840, 884. 40s, 34,000. 50s, 26, 27,600. 60s, 14,000. 70s, 4,000. We get daily tracking of this. On Thursday, 105 new people came in. Half of them now coming in say, I'm not a believer or I'm a notional Christian. I just have a notion about what Christianity is all about. So, read all, I am way out of time. Read all about it right here in your brochure. We're going to go off to the other campuses now, and the worship leaders will lead you in a song. Here at the South Hills, I just got one more thing to say. When it comes to where we are in our country, I believe we have three choices. We can continue going around saying how bad things are, right? And do nothing but watch Fox News that tells us how bad things are. We can continue to think Washington will fix all our moral issues, and we can make everything a political issue because some people here get more fired up during the political season than any other time. And if you think Washington is going to fix the issues of our country. And I'll I'll talk to you later. Or you can decide, starting with you, because it always starts here, right? To be in God's Word at least four times each week. I love people say, oh, the downfall of our country was in 1963 when they stopped reading the Bible in schools. No, the downfall of our country is because parents don't read their Bibles at home with their kids. So what are they going to do? Sit on the sidelines? Leave it to somebody else? Or get in the game? To whom much is given, much is expected. Father, thank you for our time today. Do your work in our hearts. Help us to do the things you've called us to do. Help us not to shrink back. You've given us much here at the Bible Chapel, and you expect much. And we want to be those who truly live, not die, but live as martyrs, witnesses for Jesus Christ. That is our prayer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.